Blog Talk Radio. last week, 
We talked a little bit about the seed idea, and I think the seed idea is sufficiently important. This is the kind of motivating factor that gets people developing their own particular artificial life projects, that I'm devoting an entire show next week to the seed idea. That's another important point which I should probably make. Next week is going to be a special Biota Live because we are going to do the Biota Live at the standard time of 8% p.m. Pacific, and then we're going to be switching it up. And the following day, which I believe is Saturday, February 2nd, we will be doing another Biota Live at 10 a.m., what I'm calling the uh, matinee Biota Lives for European audiences and also folk on the East Coast that don't want to stay up from 11 through to midnight and, uh, and listen live to that particular biota. So once a month, we are going to be having the uh, Saturday mornings, my time, probably Saturday evening in various parts of Europe. And the topic of discussion then, I think, is going to be the future of artificial life and what's coming up in the next decade in terms of directions of artificial life development, obviously wet artificial life, uh, possibly artificial life and robotics, and obviously artificial life and software, which is the main topic of discussion this evening. So following the Seed Idea podcast next week, next Friday, uh, the Saturday morning podcast will be, or the Saturday morning radio show, I should say, will be with regards to the future of artificial life development, the next decade, in fact. So the seed idea was covered a little bit um, last week, and this is particularly important because obviously this is the thing that motivates folks for developing artificial life projects for a decade plus. Some of us are uh, well into our second decade, and I think the you know, there are, there are two modes of thought with regards to developing an artificial life project. The first is that this is a, a kind of lifelong passion, and the second is that it can be connected with a finite time frame, and that's something that I wanted to discuss uh, specifically uh, this evening. And the time frame issue was discussed briefly last week, but I think as a hobbyist developer, and particularly someone who develops artificial life projects open source, the time frame associated with uh, developing my project, Noble Ape, is very, very flexible. So on one extreme, one has kind of commercial time frames, commercial deadlines, these kind of things, academic time frames and academic deadlines, although there is some inheritance, obviously, with regards to academic development. And then on the other side, you have the leisurely hobbyist. And I think I uh, read an article for IEEE Computer Graphics and Applications, and I think in that article I stated that it was going to be about 25 years before Noble Ape would reach version 1.000. So in this light, and as it looks like we probably won't have any callers, I'm going to talk a little bit about my experiences with Noble Ape in terms of the context of starting a new artificial life project and the, the lessons that I've learnt from developing Noble Ape. If anyone wants to call in, the number 646-200-0640. And there is also a chat client that can be uh, viewed from the Biota podcast page, biota.org slash podcast. You can get through to the, web, uh, the blog talk radio web chat and ask your questions directly. So I talked a little bit about the time frame. The manifesto, as I've described, is, is associated with documentation. And certainly Jeffrey's experience last week and my reading of Jeffrey's experience through the academic publications that he has done with regards to uh, Gene Paul in particular, it relates to a, a standard kind of academic uh, publication. However, my experience with Noble Ape was a little bit different. I wrote about 190 pages uh, on Noble Ape initially, which is now the original manual that can still be purchased through Cafe Press. And with the original manual, this was a, a really an act of kind of initial devotion in terms of specifying what Noble Ape would look like. And I thoroughly recommend anyone considering starting an artificial life development, consider putting in a good amount of time just to lay out your ideas. Now, with regards to Noble Ape specifically, this was really a three-part uh, endeavour. The first part, obviously, was to reaffirm to myself that there was actually a project there in Noble Ape. The second part was it was obviously very useful uh, in terms of users and folks getting a sense of what Noble Ape was about. And I think certainly my initial experiences uh, with a user base 
was that people gelled very quickly with regards to the original manual. And the third part was I initially, uh, well, I didn't initially, but within the first two years of developing Noble Ape, I gained a grant with the Australian Film Commission, and if I hadn't had the original manual, it would have been very difficult for me to actually get that grant. So when you start developing an artificial life project, obviously the seed idea is the most critical thing, but you need to um, embody, for want of a better term, the seed idea in the manifesto, in the documentation. And this, I think, is echoed by almost all uh, the artificial life developers that I have interviewed to date through the Biota podcasts. So the third thing, sorry, the fourth thing we talked about a little bit was with regards to collaboration and obviously my experiences with open source in that regard, which is a relatively heavy collaborative environment. I will talk about collaboration a little bit with regards to users, and users was the the section that was missed in my initial set of uh, points with regards to the ultimate project, but I think users are are relatively critical. And in some regard, that is uh, part of uh, the kind of collaborative um, experience as well. And something has gone wrong with Blog Talk Radio. Anyway, I will keep talking with the view that uh, callers may not be able to reach me. However, I will keep trying to get this up. So, in terms of the open source distribution model, Jeffrey Ventrella has, uh, and um, notably Steve Grand as well, have very different experiences with regards to how they set up their own projects specifically and um, with regards to uh, maintaining closed source. But we did talk a little bit about collaboration last week, and I don't want to dwell too much on that this week, because I think certainly the topics discussed with regards to open source identified that very strongly, and I don't feel necessarily comfortable talking about either the corporate or academic methods of developing artificial life, as I have no primary experience, although I've obviously had the opportunity to interview a number of people that have had those kind of experiences. The number again for folks who want to call in and chat, 646-200-0640. And there is also a chat window that's available for folks who want to get to the Blog Talk Radio page, which you can get to through biota.org slash podcast. So I want to talk a little bit about users and how important users are in developing an artificial life project. And... It's an interesting thing with regards to users because when you have a project that you release in any way, whether it is an academic project, whether it is a commercial project, or whether it is an open source project, users come into the the fray at some stage of the development. Whether or not it's initially, uh, they will come. Whether it is a performance piece or uh, something that is abstract art or things like this, you'll get correspondence and probably the ability to see users interact with your artificial life project in a relatively short amount of time. So I've already discussed, I think, in one of the Biota conversations that users may actually uh, be kind of the, the missing element with regards to describing particularly evolutionary methods in artificial life that a lot of our um, kind of collective developments, and I was talking specifically with regards to Gerald de Jung's Darwin at Home development in this context, are driven by users. Users are, in fact, the selection pressure that generate the direction in which whether we as artificial life developers develop explicitly, certainly our projects tend to go implicitly. So for my experiences with regards to developing Noble 8, I have always been interested in software, particularly small software, as a means of getting out ideas and a means of communicating ideas. And this came well prior to the Noble 8 development. But I've always liked the idea that when you generate software and you put it out into an environment, you get back immediate feedback from users. This actually came prior to uh, my experiences of the internet, even with early bulletin board systems. I had this kind of feedback. And back in the day, I was developing antiviral software and also compiler software. So both of those kind of things, you would imagine, you get almost immediate user feedback, which was certainly my experience of those things. So the question is, where do users congregate? And this is 
actually really a, a question with regards to how you choose to distribute your software or your uh, artificial life art installation or whatever you want to call it. Now, in developing open source software, I have used both the open source sites, and I'm talking here specifically about SourceForge and Freshmeat.net. I continue to use Freshmeat.net, and I use a wide variety of other download sites that you would use to um, download shareware or these kind of programs. I, I put an overlap on those sites too. Now, in the last radio show, I talked to Jeffrey briefly about my own experiences with SourceForge, and my experiences with SourceForge haven't necessarily been positive aside from the fact that it's been a very productive mechanism to enable me to get in contact with other open source developers, and particularly open source developers who are passionately interested in artificial life, and also perhaps the likes of Apple and Intel. I'm still not really clear how the initial correspondence started with Apple, but I suspect they probably found my stuff through either SourceForge or FreshMeet. Now, if you're familiar with the history of open source, and it's something that I've talked about through the um, Is uh, Open Source Good for Artificial Life biota conversation, but it's certainly something in my own musing, which if you listen to Ape Reality, you'll hear as well. I have lingering concerns with regards to the structure and methodologies associated with open source. And this comes in particular reference with regards to SourceForge, because I think SourceForge um, in my own experience, has modeled a kind of get-rich-quick scheme associated with some branches of open source. So um, as I have a few minutes to talk about this, um, please humor me as I discuss this in slightly greater detail. So my experience with SourceForge initially was very positive. SourceForge offers uh, various kinds of version control, so you can have multiple developers all working on the same source code base. It enables doing releases, it enables news feeds, it enables mailing lists, all these kind of things that you sometimes get through a subset of standard web hosting, and I'll talk about that in a, a minute. But SourceForge offered all those things initially, and then slowly but surely there was a kind of, we, we've got to make profit come into the conversation. Aside from advertising and other means that SourceForge used in order to generate revenue, they started uh, running a donation program where open source developers were supposed to uh, actively, or maybe in some cases passively, uh, get donations. And this, these donations were partially skimmed by SourceForge. And that, that didn't rest too easily with me. The secondary point uh, was that SourceForge then started charging or enabling developers to put a, a charge component into their services. And certainly with my previous experience, that wasn't particularly kosher because I had uh, two developers, as I've noted in the previous show, uh, who contacted me directly, and these were great people, and I would hate to have thought that I would have to bid for their services. Um, certainly I've sent them a number of things over the years, and um, hopefully both of them as, as frequent listeners to these podcasts will feel thoroughly appreciated for all their efforts. But I think SourceWords has kind of broken two axioms with regards to open source development. The first is to uh, enable projects to uh, exist and move in particular directions without having um, any kind of, uh, well, non-invasive, basically, um, uh, approaches put over them, which is what I found with the skimming component. And the second part is obviously that open source projects need to be able to access developers easily. And unfortunately, with the charging and various other things that have happened more recently. SourceForge, I think, is less of a productive tool currently for open source than it was maybe five years ago. However, I continue to use FreshMeet, and FreshMeet is a clearinghouse uh, for open source projects. It's a great resource, um, quite a bit less advertising, and generally uh, it's a good way to get your project out to a wide variety of users that may become advanced users and may become expert users and may actually go on to be co-developers with regards to your software. So that is a kind of potted view with regards to the open source sites that I use for the Noble 8 development and certainly things that you should consider if you're going to be uh, developing an open source project in terms of how you do the releases. Now on the other side, you have standard download sites, uh, many of which distribute a wide variety of software a small component of which is open source. And these sites 
tend to appeal to a far broader group. Now, what's interesting with these sites, and this is the idea of the kind of active user, is that they tend to collect user comments. And this is useful in some regard and also painful in another regard because you get very quickly, you get, you get very um, uh, direct feedback with regards to your development, which can be very useful in terms of motivating productive changes, particularly uh, for artificial life projects um, in reference to looking more like video games or being more colourful or these kind of things. But also because you're dealing with um, commercial products and shareware products and freeware products as well, none of which necessarily comply with uh, open source methodologies, you cannot always get users uh, that are uh, receptive to the issues of open source, particularly the issues of uh, contributed and productive feedback. So if you're creating uh, an open source project, I thoroughly encourage you to put the software available wherever possible uh, in terms of downloads. And this sometimes puts you in uh, kind of strange, almost competitive uh, views with regards to the likes of Willwright, Spore, and things like this, the, these kind of packages which are very definitely not open source, but have some venting into artificial life. So I've talked a little bit about where users congregate. There's a lingering question with regards to whether you develop artificial life software for users or whether you're actually developing artificial life software for yourself. And you may have heard through the Biota interviews that I've skirted this question with some developers more than others because I think some developers, if we look at Jeffrey Ventrella explicitly, the aesthetic of his work is so strong that it is really uh, capturing an, an element of himself which I think the users are very receptive to. But then again, one can create uh, an artificial life project in a number of different contexts. And the context I've described is with regards to traditional software being released. But obviously, if you're creating artwork, or if you're creating commercial software, or if you're creating academic software, most importantly, the idea of users are uh, different and perhaps less intrinsic than the, the users that I have described so far. So all of these things need to be considered. If you recall from the previous uh, radio show, what Bruce was discussing explicitly related to uh, an academic project, which would be used by academics and fundamentally would end up being used by other artificial life developers. So in that context, obviously the user group is different to the kind of context I'm talking about with regards to a release of the Noble 8 development. If you're listening into this live and you'd like to call in, the call-in number is 646-200-0640. I'll be taking any calls this evening. If you want to ask any questions or contribute to the dialogue at all, I will welcome your call. So, the idea of users. Users can be thought of in a non-trivial way as well. If you think about, for example, uh, what Justin Lyon was talking about in terms of his work with, I think it was IBM, uh, and if you think about my interaction with Apple and Intel, these are users that are corporations. And if you work with universities, my own experience recently, I worked with a small group at uh, University of California, San Diego, I think, or was it, I think it was San Diego State, actually, I should say. And they have very different needs uh, to a traditional user, uh, someone who may download your software from a download site, leave comments, these kind of things. So when you think of users, you should think of them in the broadest possible context. And obviously, when I deal with Apple and Intel, their needs as users are very different than someone who has left a comment on a download site. But this is very much the kind of applied end of what the ultimate project should be considered with regards to. So I thought if I was going to jam this evening, I would talk explicitly with regards to the applied stuff, as this is more resonant in my mind. I may have mentioned that I released a version of Noble 8 yesterday evening, so I'm thinking about all these things in context currently. The next point which we discussed a little bit in the last radio show was with regards to the code. And the code is particularly interesting, and I think of this in a kind of software engineering context. Um, my background is software engineering. Uh, I think almost all uh, artificial life developers are software engineers professionally, and I think this is 
indicative of the kind of mentality that uh, artificial life developers have with regards to code specifically. Um, if, if one was to give some kind of background narrative, this may also uh, relate to various fears with regards to open source and things of this nature, which we've discussed uh, in the last radio show explicitly. So software engineering and talking to people who are interested in developing an artificial life project in the context of software, obviously, always has to relate to contemporary software engineering practices operating systems, source code, this kind of stuff. And this is a relatively mundane thing in some regard. I would recommend, and I think it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting project to actually learn to program through developing your own artificial life uh, experiment. And I think uh, if you talk to Bruce Damer, and certainly uh, whilst I was programming well before Noble Ape, the things that I've learned through developing Noble Ape uh, have been uh, you know, particularly uh, productive in terms of my own uh, professional career. So the idea of software engineering in an abstract sense uh, can be talked about at great length at a kind of high level, as we did last week briefly with regards to the discussion of interface. But the practical nature of it is that you need to pick an operating system that you're going to be developing on. I always recommend the operating system that you use primarily. And then you need to pick a language. And here you find the experiences in artificial life development quite divergent in terms of the language that you should pick. So where does one even begin in terms of learning languages, picking which language to learn, these kind of things? In terms of projects that use languages, artificial life projects that use languages, almost all the languages that you would find, including Python, Java, C++, uh, even C, I developed Noble primarily in C, are all represented. There are other languages like JavaScript uh, and you know languages of that nature, which are also represented uh, in terms of artificial life projects, contemporary artificial life projects. Moving into the future, I think there are going to be an increasing number of languages, and this we touched on briefly with regards to scripting last um, episode. And really, I don't think there is a wrong language to use. There has been some discussion over the past year with regards to the use of Java in artificial life development. And personally, I don't think there's any specific issue in terms of writing artificial life software in Java. It seems to be perfectly useful for Gerald. And I think others will find Java an ideal environment to write artificial life software. Um, certainly folks like uh, Dave Kerr, for example, uh, used a, a Delphi derivative, which is a bit like Pascal or um, Ada. Here we are testing my uh, language grouping knowledge. But uh, Dave Kerr is a good example of someone who used a language that had never traditionally been used for artificial life development, but because it was Dave's primary language of interest, this was what he used specifically. So there's no real wrong answer in terms of picking a language. I think the main issue is just the speed in which you can get direct feedback and whether that's going to be an issue for you in terms of time frame. If you're someone who likes immediate feedback, there may be some benefit in terms of going to uh, a language that was already being used for artificial life development. Certainly, I've had a lot of feedback from folks that have downloaded Noble Ape in terms of trying to learn how to develop an artificial life project uh, and also learn to program through Noble Ape. And certainly, Apple has evangelized uh, Noble Ape to folks that want to tune various aspects of their programming. So it may be beneficial to download an existing artificial life project. And here I return to the idea that the artificial life developer will be very, very receptive to you getting in contact. So once you've downloaded a project, Brevet is a good example for me because I have downloaded Brevet, uh, John Klein's Brevet, um, on a semi-regular basis. The website URL, Spiderland, uh, as in spider, as in arachnidandland.org, slash Brevet, B-R-E-V-E, although I think spiderland.org will also get you straight to the Brevet site. So if you download John Klein's Brevet and you're a relative novice to um, software development, you may be initially overwhelmed by what you see. However, 
John Klein is very receptive to new users and very receptive to folks that are downloading the software and even folks such as myself. Um, John will respond to uh, with a, a great degree of detail and patience uh, and walk you through any questions that you all have. I personally will also do the same if you want to download the most recent mobile eight source code released yesterday. Um, if you want to get your hands onto Gerald's source code, uh, Gerald de Jong's Darwin at home, I'm sure he's very receptive to uh, folks downloading the source code. I'm not sure what the status is of Dave Kerr's um, AI Planet, uh, but I'm sure um, in terms of the scripting languages associated with AI Planet, the languages that enable you to create creatures that exist in AI Planet, these kind of things, I'm sure Dave is very receptive to folks downloading uh, and communicating with him specifically on that. This brings up actually a really interesting issue, which is that a number of programs, and I think also of, uh, Ken Stauffer's Evolve 4, uh, or Evolution 4, is it Evolve? I think it's Evolve 4. Sorry, Ken, if you're listening. Uh, they have scripting languages in addition to the programming languages. So what you do, and I'll explain this in a kind of potted sense, is that you download the software and the software is compiled and there are um, there is additional programming language that you can use. So in the case of Noble Ape, you download the Noble Ape simulation and if you want to uh, write some means of controlling the apes or controlling how they move and interact and create some idea of a language or some blueprint with regards to all of this, you download the Noble Ape simulation and then you have a language called ApeScript which you can write uh, ape controlling software in. So in this regard, if you're new to programming, well, I don't know if I'd necessarily recommend ApeScript as a good starting point if you're new to programming. But if you're new to programming, there are a number of levels that you can look at existing artificial life projects, both with regards to the primary source code, i.e. the source code that the project is made out of, but also in some cases with regards to a higher level scripting language that will enable you to control agents and uh, move them around uh, and just start tinkering and start thinking about ideas in artificial life. And certainly my own experience um, in communicating with all the folks that I've listed and possibly other folks that I've forgotten is that they are very receptive to any kind of correspondence. And this isn't just because, you know, I'm Tom Barbelay emailing them because, you know, I may use this stuff in Noble Ape or what have you or, you know, interest in a biota interview or things like that. These people are genuinely friendly and are genuinely receptive to um, user or new user or potential user-related questions, particularly with regards to the source code, both in terms of the scripting language and in terms of the primary source code. And here, um, you know, my, my own experience has been that when folks get in contact with me specifically and ask me any uh, degree of questions, be it a question with regards to compiling the simulation under Windows, I seem to get a few of them, uh, I will either create a uh, Windows distribution specifically for their requirements or I will walk them through what is necessary. So there are all these things that are available to um, new users that want to start getting into coding with regards to um, you know, means of tinkering and perhaps either collaborating with an existing project or starting their own. So, in terms of programming languages, the sky's the limit. You can pick anyone that you like. But if you're interested in learning to program through doing an artificial life development, you have two options. The first, as I've discussed, is that you approach an existing project and you either try through a scripting language associated with that project or through the low-level code of the project to develop it. Or alternatively, you start your own from scratch. Now, I don't recommend either way. I think basically there are reasons that one will start an artificial life development and the reasons that one will want to contribute to an existing artificial life project. And both of these reasons, are, or the collection of reasons that fall into these two categories are, are perfectly valid. My feeling with regards to starting a new artificial life project is that there are so many potential areas that you can go into, and this is really the discussion of the seed idea, which will be the next Biota Live podcast. So I don't want to dwell too much on the seed idea. However, when you start developing an artificial life project, and this I will talk about from my own experience, from my primary experience, 
you want to start with a very, very simple idea that you can implement, watch, and it gives you almost immediate feedback. You don't want to start with an idea that will require a lot of implementation, a lot of time, uh, and you know things can go wrong, you can lose interest, it become fundamentally frustrating. You'll get all those emotions later on, but you want to minimize those emotions initially. So with my own development at Noble what I started with, um, and this again is testing my memory, but I started with an idea of a basic landscape and then the apes wandering over the landscape. It was an island environment. But this was an ideal closed system for me specifically uh, to write software uh, around. It gave me immediate feedback and it meant while I was writing the 190-page manual, I also had the ability to... Uh, actually run software and take screenshots and talk about projections and these kind of things. So the idea initially should be a, a relatively simple piece of software that captures the basic elements of what you're trying to do, but with a number of possible directions of to be continued. And if you look at the initial Noble 8 development, there was a lot of directions that it could be continued in. So Historically, I added a wide variety of additional things, some of which continue on today in the Noble 8 development, but many of them were dropped. I still have the dream of making it into a planetary development, so I developed kind of Planet Noble 8, which had a lot of the um, underlying methodologies, but a different kind of land mapping. You can think about all these kind of things. I've discussed this, obviously, explicitly in the Biota chats with uh, Gerald, so you may have heard some of that through Gerald and my chats associated with him moving uh, Darwin at home uh, in particular directions. So start small and keep in mind that what you are developing is something that can be developed for years, if not tens of years. This is oftentimes very difficult to lose, very difficult to kind of maintain in perspective. And certainly when I started developing Noble Ape, and this comes through in the original manuals, my thought was, this is a development that should, you know, gather intellectuals the world over and get them collaborating and communicating, and this will be a wonderful thing. It won't it be amazing? Now, to a certain extent, some of that happened initially, and then people moved on, and, you know, things change. But I think the strength of the seed idea and the fact that there was still software that ran and still documentation that was being generated and still users that were making contributions and giving feedback led to the project developing on. So the aim is to start small, to think in terms of long-term perspective. If you're doing a fundamentally hobbyist project, obviously if you're doing a PhD project or a commercial bit of software, your model is going to be very different. But what I'm talking about this evening is from personal experience. If you have another experience, feel free to call in 646-200-0640. It's a number to call. There is a chat window which you can type into, you can get to the chat window through biota.org slash podcast and you'll get a link through to the chat window. So, motivating factors in terms of developing a project. For me, think long term. Think about users. Think about what you can add in layers. So if you look at the Noble Ape development, what has happened progressively is that I've added new things. And I've added new things that in some sense fit in at the side, in some sense fit in at the top, in some sense are complete rewrites of other sections. But basically for me, Noble Ape has been a software engineering project in development over a long period of time. So, for example, I changed the landscape algorithm. I added weather. Weather was a big thing. It was uh, very aesthetically pleasing. And ironically, I got feedback from folks that were actually interested in simulating weather, and it was a whole new group of users. When I started developing Noble Ape, there were a wide variety of people that had their own pet interests in Noble Ape, and what I found interesting in launching the project and in getting people involved initially was that they all had different ideas about the way the project was going to go. And I think ultimately this has come through user feedback too. But don't feel overwhelmed in some regard initially with the possibilities of direction or a necessarily a tight focus. So you have two extremes there that you possibly should avoid. But think of it as a leisurely hobby if you're going to consider it as a, a hobbyist developer. And I think this is certainly the attitude or uh, experience that I wanted to convey through the Biota interviews to date, an ability to kind of capture 
the hobbyist mentality that this is something that people look forward to, look forward to uh, participating in and to doing and this was analogous to a wide variety of other engineering hobbies in some regard. However, people had um, particular interests and particular passions that I thought were very interesting in terms of the interview series to date. So, start small, build layers, think in terms of years as opposed to uh, weeks or days. So the time frame of a hobbyist development if you look at features that would be introduced or engineered in the real world, it's very different than, for example, if you were developing a commercial piece of software. For major changes in the Noble 8 development, and I, hear, I think here about um, multi-window color, the multi-window color interface for Noble 8, and also releasing the initial or the new uh, Mac Carbon version, an operating system, system specific change but something that took in the order of 12 to 18 months and for most major changes because you are doing it for well if you're lucky maybe an hour a day um, in standard times perhaps three to four hours a week or maybe even less time than that you need to project how long things are realistically going to take now it's not because you have time frames that are set for you explicitly but you need to get a sense that if you spend four weeks and evenings working on a specific feature and it isn't quite finished yet, that's just the nature of the development. And this is something that comes through in terms of hobbyist open source development as well. So you need to think in terms of much larger time frames than would normally be applicable if you were developing software professionally, for example. Another interesting thing is quality coding time. And this is something that I talked about in the IEEE uh, graphics and applications article specifically. Whilst you may only have a small amount of time to do coding specifically with your artificial life project if you're a hobbyist, you will always have the ability to think about what you are going to be developing. And this is the idea of the mental screensaver. So for example, if I was walking, if I was on a train, um, if I was having my lunch in moments where I had a moment to think, a wide variety of other moments as well, I could work on the current problem that was facing me with regards to the Noble Ape development. And this really changed the tables in terms of traditional software development. This is something that I found fascinating when I wrote the uh, IEEE article, and I think it's something that still interests me to this day that whilst one may project large time frames into the future associated with the kind of development one's going to do, the reality is that the kind of software that is engineered over that time frame, the kind of software that's developed, the kind of artificial life program that is created, has a different quality to something that is done in a kind of commercial time frame, short time frame, short period with regards to thinking, you know, all these kind of things condensed. And this is what interested me um, in a kind of engineering context in terms of describing this for the IEEE article. What did it mean in terms of how software was actually developed? Well, the quality of the software changes. I think I have a caller. Hello. Hello, it's Jeffrey. Hey, Jeffrey, how's it going? Hi, I'm sorry. Not a problem, not a problem. Have you heard any of my freestyling so far? Oh, just a little bit. I just got on, so <laughs> I, I'm just kind of getting getting caught up. Wonderful, wonderful. So the, the first 40 minutes, I was straight rapping <laughs> with, okay. regards to, with regards to um, the ultimate project and my own experiences with No Ape. Uh -huh. I wanted, I mean, I think the stuff that I've detailed so far has talked about the qualities of open source development, the qualities of kind of long time frame development in terms of having a long period of time and not necessarily so much coding time, but certainly more thinking time than one would necessarily have in a kind of tight commercial time yeah. frame. And I think this is very um, very similar to your experiences with regards to uh, developing after um, after um, your, your corporate experience. In terms right, of yeah. So the, the only divergence, I think, really in our experiences, aside from source code, is your experience in terms of user base and how you got users with, um, with Gene Paul and Darwin Pond initially. Can you talk a little bit about how 
folks have, have picked up your software. You mean how they found it or how I've uh, pushed it or? Both. Yeah, well, um, I, um, I think it helps that I, that I got started a little earlier when, when the web was a smaller place. <laughs> um, and, um, and it was a little bit easier for people to find you. Um, but I've just been continually adding to my web page, and that's probably helped. Um, and also uh, being able to develop Darwin Pond, which was basically a commercial product that never never got out, um, helped. You know, to have it have that extra polish. I think. In terms of actually out. doing releases, do you do you release Gene Pool explicitly on download sites and things? No, I've only offered it on my on my page. Um, yeah, that's the only place that I I provide it. So your model is really quite passive in terms of users um, stumbling across it, as opposed to it being put in front of users in a in a wide variety of other games or scientific tools or things like that. Um, it's sort of pseudo passive, maybe passive aggressive. How's that? <laughs> um, uh, no, I, I, I mean, I do, uh, I do promote it, but, um, uh, but uh, not too aggressively. Um, uh, I just try to keep making it better every time. I think you're one of the few artificial life developers that still have links that work from Richard Dawkins' site. Can you talk a little bit about how those links were established? Richard Dawkins' site, which. Uh, his old site still has links through to uh, Gene Paul. Oh, his uh, site does. I, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> oh well, that's kind of groovy. Yeah. No, I had correspondence with his webmaster a while back because I think your site is the only site that still has valid links through. Really? Uh huh. Well, um, I think that it may have something to do with my choice in platform. Uh, I decided to to dig right down into the to the bedrock of Win32. On, 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 you know, the PC uh, DNA and code right into that and to, to try to avoid all the other levels of software and just, and I've, I've maintained it at that level. So the idea being that Win32 being kind of the DNA of, of PCs is not yeah, going to go away anytime. Certainly I do the same. In fact, in correspondence with uh, Gerald DeYoung, maybe, a year and a half ago, he couldn't believe. I mean, what I do is I release um, C uh, and then have a very thin platform interface yeah. for Mac, Windows and Linux. Oh, yeah, um, uh-huh. But I don't, as you say, I don't use any high-level APIs for Windows. It's all, as you say, Win32. Although increasingly, um, certainly on the Apple end, but on the Microsoft end as well, there are very predatory moves with regards to us low-level developers on these are platforms. There? Um, I get that feeling. Well, just in terms of the fact that um, uh, the directions of .NET and things like that, I mean, you're always, I'm not sure if you've yeah. tried compiling with the latest uh, Visual Studios, but you always have to add a little bit more just to get uh, it to compile. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, I haven't encountered that yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if uh, if that happened. I certainly feel it more on the Mac. On the Mac, they've, um, a li well, it, it's, I, I have to choose my words well because it's not that they've eliminated, but they've just made noises with regards to stopping supporting um, a lot of the C and C++ interface to the low level. Um, oh, really? So you now need to use a, a mediating layer or write something around it. Um, however, I mean, if, if you consider... Um, if you consider moving Gene Paul into something that is multi-platform, um, you know it, it may be something that you experience, or perhaps if you have you considered using something like uh, Brevet or, as Bruce was saying, digital spaces in terms of the high-level graphics and things like that. Um, I, uh, I, I'd have to look into what those are, but I mean, it sounds like a good idea. Um, Traditionally, I had gene pool the graphics separate from the simulation, and in the new in the new version that I'm making, it's separate. I I can't say all the files are you know completely separate, but it, functionally it's pretty separate. Um, and I think that would that would, is probably one of the best candidates for op the open source model is to 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 to, to open that up. But um, I don't know much about Breve. Maybe you can. 
Well, Brevet um, is John Klein's development. He's had quite a bit of success in terms of um, getting uh, kind of undergraduate university level students mm. to use it for their various uh, simulations and also for teaching um, intelligent agent simulation and all the all the um, Craig Reynolds stuff and all that kind uh -huh. of good early artificial life stuff. And it's uh, uh, now a... Um, I don't know how much physics there is. There's kind of collision detection and that kind of physics, but it uh -huh. has um, now, I believe, a Python uh, interface. It did have a Java interface, or at least discussion towards a Java interface for a period of time. And he also has his own Steve language, um, which a lot of these earlier um, projects used in terms of uh, creating an interface. But I think for um, in terms of the fluid movements, in terms of the two-dimensional fluid movements and moving them into potentially three dimensions, oh. I think Brevet would uh, give you a lot of scope in terms of that, uh -huh. that shift. Um, the benefit as well, as I was detailing a little earlier, is that John Klein um, is a wonderful correspondent. Um, so yeah. if you even make a brief mention, as I have in the past, of using aspects of his stuff, mm -hmm. um, you know, he, he will get in contact and... Uh, and have extended correspondence with regards to how to actually make that happen. Um, I, you and Bruce were talking about getting together. Have you had an opportunity to to go down to the farm and see Bruce? Um, I haven't, but it's it's uh, it's something that I I need to figure out. Uh, my wife would probably be going down with me, so that complicates things just a little bit more. Um, uh, as far as finding the right weekend to do that, but I think I think um, <laughs> probably some offline news. I think Galen's away currently, so if if your wife's going down to see Galen as well, uh, oh. I'm, I think it'll be a following weekend. However, Bruce has got the um, NASA conference that he's organising this weekend, right. which is probably yeah. why he can't join us this evening. Um, right, right. I did. Yeah, I, I did try to correspond with him early this morning, but it didn't uh -huh. look likely that he was going to be in um, our chat this evening. The interesting thing in kind of comparison and contrast um, with regards to digital space and brevet is they are quite distinct environments. I think there are elements of um, hybridization that could go in and actually produce a, a kind of super um, environment. Mm -hmm. John Klein's experience is, as I say, with regards to relatively simple um, simulation and Bruce's experience is obviously with regards to very high levels of detail or simulation, the stuff that he was doing with NASA, have you ever seen him him give um, live demonstrations of that work? Of the NASA work, mm -hmm. um, I've seen some of it, but it was it was a, uh, a year or more ago, so yeah. it, it may have developed a different. Oh, I, I think I've, I've probably seen it in a similar time frame. So we're both familiar with the um, yeah. rovers and the dust particles and all that kind of stuff. So Brevet is. Um, considerably more applied in some regard. There are also things like Framsticks. I'm not sure if you've looked at Framsticks at all, much yes. like Kamachinsky's uh -huh. project. Um, right. And I'm not sure, I, I suspect it would probably be similarly easy to implement something through Framsticks. Um, uh -huh. But if, you, if you're doing a rewrite currently, these kind of decisions currently, or even spending a little bit of time in investigation, um, may save a lot of additional development time. And certainly what I was saying with regards to if you're considering making some parts open source, then perhaps mm -hmm. the other parts could be already existing open source projects that could fill, fill um, you know, mm -hmm. whatever you were um, not wanting to open, so to speak. Well, there's a, there's a kind of a, a vision of all of this uh, as it evolves that I, I'm – I'm relating also to a, a vision of um, the way virtual worlds are evolving because, um, you know, I was uh, in, in 97, I, I started developing uh, there.com with, with Will Harvey, and then I recently for two years worked at, at Linden Lab, makers of Second Life. And, and now I'm working with a new company um, on some new virtual world platforms, and what I'm seeing is an evolution towards a much more granular, modular, open kind of environment where uh, people are not going, uh, it's, it's, it's not sort of the monolithic model that, that we had at the end of the 20th century, right? We're moving into a new model. And I think that maybe that, that just could be a way that uh, all software is going as a general trend. And um, so 
I'm kind of keeping that in mind as I develop the new gene pool, although I'm not, I'm not going there in leaps and bounds. I'm kind of gently moving in that direction. So if we can um, characterize this, this is, and perhaps we've seen similar projects, but this is the idea of kind of small area simulations that communicate from much larger spaces. Are, are, are you asking about the virtual world? Or the, yeah, I'm saying the, the concept that um, is useful for artificial life developers in particular is that you're dealing with, uh, on particular machines, small simulated areas that intercommunicate with larger kind of uh, virtual world holes. So but, that's the you. Yeah. Does that characterize what you're talking about? Well, I'm, I'm thinking like in in in, uh, in, in the virtual world s scenario, I was just talking today with some people that there are now um, fairly inexpensive um, server software that you can that you can buy, and it takes care of all of the, the plumbing for um, you know sort of creating a simulation on a server and, and letting you communicate with that. And then there are of course people like Musgrave who have created terrains and uh, you know uh, other examples of of companies or, or or pieces of software that do the terrain and. And you know uh, there are other operations that are specifically dealing with avatars, and, uh, and you know there are many different ways that you can cut and slice reality into these different components. Um, and it's it's fascinating to see this happen in the industry, in the virtual worlds industry. Um, and I think there's a similarity. I don't know if that's specifically answering your question, but I think for a generalist user, in terms of explaining what you just said, the idea is that the server technology, which had previously been the limiting factor, the distributed server technology in particular, yeah. is now no longer an issue. But still, the thing that interests me and possibly you as well is how um, you simulate, for example, people walking over a, a, a vegetated landscape and their interactions with the vegetation. Now, obviously, that doesn't have to be communicated immediately to mm. all other participants in the virtual world, but if the vegetative landscape has some uh, component that allows for lizards to you know, interact mm -hmm. and these kind of things, the, the, the simulation density can be localized in some regard, and mm. the way in which this information is shared over distributed networks, I think this is the the fascinating problem for uh, contemporary artificial life developers looking to make their work applicable, as you say, for the uh, mm. ever-growing virtual worlds industry, mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, is this characterizing what you were saying? Yeah, I think it's along those lines. Um, uh, uh, in fact, you, you were mentioning the lizards. Uh, one, of my, one of my dreams is to create a virtual world to really combine virtual worlds with artificial life, which I think is what kind of what a lot of us are, 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 are thinking about, um, a, a world in which you can be the lizard, and in fact, you and your friends are the lizards, and maybe you're chatting, maybe you're not, you're just catching flies or whatever, but um, a human foot might walk next to you, which is somebody's avatar, and perhaps in their simulation, perhaps what they're viewing on their client is not the world on, in the lizard scale of things but on the avatar human scale of things and that just that brings up a whole other uh, you know question of levels of simulation and simultaneous simulation certainly well we have two minutes remaining Jeffrey but you segue <laughs> perfectly into next week's topic which is the seed idea I wanted to expand what we had discussed uh, last week about the passion and the vision needed in creating initial idea in order to start an artificial life project, or as you're talking about now, start a, a component of a, another broader project. Um, so at the same time next week, and also uh, 10 a.m. Uh, the following day, the following Saturday, uh, for folks in uh, Europe and on the East Coast that want to participate as well. So, Jeffrey, you have both those times. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry you couldn't have joined uh, a little earlier, but we'll continue sorry this discussion that. next week. Not a problem. Great talking with you for folks thank tuning you, into this. Thank you very much. BIOTA.org slash podcast uh, to get the recorded version. Obviously, I'm going to put the re-leveled versions of the previous two podcasts up. Hopefully, Bruce Damer will, will get his levels right. Thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, 8 p.m. Pacific Friday next week. Talk to you all soon. Thank you.
Blog Talk Radio.